All right, a little bit of confession time here this morning. How many of you missed your devotions this morning because of the hockey game? I, uh, I actually cut out my devotions 10 minutes early and uh, turned on the TV just in time to get Sidney Crosby's uh, breakaway goal there. I said, thank you, Lord. That was so awesome. And uh, it's a bit of a disadvantage. He can watch it the whole time while I'm talking to him, but I need to, to stop. But... Uh, well, you know, the verse that came to my mind this morning, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Like, that was just total misuse of the verse, but uh, we're in our series last week, um, Stefan, awesome message on the Joy Center, he'll flesh that out more in the coming weeks, and uh, that's important. I hope, uh, I hope some of you took that message and then went home and started to flesh it out. We could have been here for hours and hours, the implications of that message for how we parent and how we interact with our spouse and, and how we interact with God and all that sort of stuff. Really awesome, and in the future we'll, we'll hear more about that. But uh, today we'll go back to our series uh, 7, and we're going through the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia, Revelation chapters 1, uh, 2, and 3. And today we're going to tackle the letter to the church at Thyatira. Let's bow our heads and pray, and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, um, first of all, we thank you for your love. And uh, in these letters, Jesus, you have so much gold for us, telling us how to overcome, drawing us into yourself. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that your love for us is not a, it's not a permissive, weak love. It's a strong, zealous, holy love, that you don't leave us in the muck. Lord Jesus, you draw us deeper into yourself and you call us to a, to a righteousness that is life. And I thank you for that. I just pray that today in the message, Jesus, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for what we're going to learn. I thank you for how we're going to be changed. In your name we pray today. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. All right, so I'm, I'm going to just throw a map up there. I did this earlier in the series already, but just a reminder. Uh, here's, the, here's the seven uh, cities where these churches were located. It's in the modern-day uh, uh, country of Turkey. Um, but in, uh, in Roman times, this was the province of Asia, Patmos there, in the, I've got it circled in red, a little island there in the bottom left, that's where John is, he's over 90 years old and he's writing these letters to the churches. And the reason the, the letters fall in the order that they fall, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and down through Laodicea, is because a traveler, the, the, the mailmen, you know, the messengers who brought these letters to the churches, the way they would have traveled following the main highways through the province of Asia, they would have landed in Ephesus after getting the letters from John in Patmos, then they would have traveled up Smyrna, Pergamum, and then down into the interior, Thyatira, down through Laodicea, okay? So, so far we've covered those first three there, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, and now we're going to move more into the interior, Th interior and Thyatira and, and down, okay? And so in the first three messages of this of these letters, these first three letters to the churches that we looked at the last few weeks there, um, those first three cities along the coast there, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, those are far and away the biggest uh, cities out of the seven, okay? I mean, they're all big cities. None of these are, are small villages or anything like that. But the ones along the coast there are, are, were certainly the most powerful cities out of the seven. Very wealthy, very religious. I mean, that's where most of the architecture where it was. That's where most of the political power was. Um, and, and so... And, and then when we, as we move in now to Thyatira and Sardis and down, these are smaller cities. We know from archaeology and, and uh, ancient writings and stuff, Thyatira was kind of a manu... It was a blue-collar 
type city. It was a manufacturing place, uh, lots of tanners and leather workers and bronze workers and uh, bakers and pottery uh, makers and all this sort of stuff. It was a very blue collar kind of place. A lot of uh, just working class uh, people. In fact, if you were going to compare uh, these cities sort of like to the, to the United States of America today, the first three cities we looked at, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, would sort of be kind of, you know, Washington, D.C., New York City, L.A. Sort of, they're the power centers. They're the culture centers. They're the political centers, the financial centers. You know, Thyatira would, would be more like Detroit 30 or 40 years ago. This is where, you know, people, they go, this is where they just work hard and uh, not a lot of flashy stuff, not a huge city, not tons and tons of power, but they make a lot of stuff here. And uh, so it was a real center for manufacturing and trade in the province of Asia. Now, well, when you think of it that way, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, well, probably this was an easier place to be a Christian than Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, which as we've looked at so far, uh, were all very difficult places to be Christians. But because just real religious, demonic, uh, politically powerful centers, they were, it was hard to be a Christian in those cities. And you might think, well, okay, this is more of a blue-collar town, a little smaller, away from the power centers. Uh, might be a little bit easier to be a Christian there. Um, but Thyatira actually had its own uh, unique difficulties for Christians. Very, some unique challenges if you were a Christian living in Thyatira uh, 2,000 years ago. And the reason it was a, a, a very uniquely difficult place to be a Christian in Thyatira is because all of, I said it was a kind of a blue-collar town. It's kind of a, a manufacturing place. People lived there. They worked hard. They made a lot of stuff that got traded around the Roman Empire. Um, the thing was, each of these trades had organized themselves. They were highly organized, organized themselves into what they called at the time trade guilds. Now, what is a trade guild? Um, we don't really have anything totally exactly like it today in our culture, but it would have been sort of like, uh, you know, kind of, not exactly, but sort of kind of like a union, okay? But what would happen is you'd have like sort of your bronze workers, for example, your bronze workers trade guild. All the bronze workers in Thyatira came together and they formed a bronze workers trade guild, okay? And you couldn't work, you couldn't do bronze work, you couldn't get business unless you were part of the guild, Okay? Another one of the really famous uh, ones, Thyatira was famous around the world, all over the Roman Empire, for their ability to make the color purple. Okay, it's true. We take that kind of stuff for granted now. But Thyatira was known around the world for their purple dye. Okay? So one of the big trades, one of the big businesses that they did at Thyatira, merchants would come from all over the world, certainly all over the Roman Empire. They'd come from all over the world to Thyatira to buy purple stuff because it was the best purple stuff you could find was in Thyatira, and then they'd go and sell clothes and different fabrics and stuff in purple. But Thyatira was a special place. In fact, this even pops up in the Bible. Uh, I've done this throughout this series, but I really like uh, pulling in verses from other books of the Bible where you see these cities pop up. But we uh, see Thyatira actually pop up in Acts chapter 16. Uh, one of the first Christian converts that Paul and Silas made in the city of Philippi was a woman from Thyatira who was selling purple goods. I'll just take you there briefly. Uh, Acts 16 verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. So there it was who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, so okay, and there you see it. They were known around the world. It even pops up in other places in the Bible for making this purple stuff. Now, you say, well, what does that have to do with being a Christian? Okay, well, let's say, for example, you were a young man or woman 
uh, and, and, you know, in Thyatira, and now you wanted to get into the purple dye-making business. You wanted to be making uh, purple fabrics, and you wanted to make a lot of money doing that. Uh, how would you get into making purple? Well, you'd have to, to join the Dye Makers Guild. Why? First of all, they kept the secret. It was a trade secret. How do you make this amazing purple you can only get in Thyatira? Well, it was a secret. Nobody else knew. In most places in the world in that time, they made the color purple using oysters and shellfish and stuff like that. And, uh, and so they made the color purple all over. But in Thyatira, they had perfected this this unique way of making the color purple using the roots from a particular vine that lived in that area. But it was a trade secret. So if you wanted to get into that business, first of all, you had to learn the trade secret. In order to learn the trade secret, you had to, you had to be accepted. You had to become a part of the Purple Dye Makers Trade Guild, okay? Now let's say, um, let's say that somehow you knew the trade secret, okay? So you didn't need to know. Like maybe you're a Christian and now you don't want to be in the Purple Dye Makers you know, Trade Guild anymore or whatever, so you just, you just want to leave or whatever. You still needed the, the Trade Guild because not only did they keep the secrets of how to make the purple dye, they also monopolized all the tools for making that purple dye. So it wasn't like if you wanted to get into the purple dye making business, even assuming that you somehow did know the trade secret without being a part of the guild, if you wanted to actually go and make the purple dye, you couldn't just go to you know, Canadian Tire and pick up the tools you needed to do it. The, the purple dye makers trade guild had all the tools and they wouldn't give or sell you any of those tools unless you were part of their guild. And then in addition to that, they would monopolize all the business. So if you wanted to get business from merchants and stuff, buying purple stuff from you, you, again, they monopolize it. The merchants would go to the trade guild and get it. You wouldn't get any business unless you were part of the trade guild. Now you say, well, uh, I still don't get, you know, why this would have made it difficult to be a Christian. Well, here's the problem. Each of these trade guilds, whether it be the bronze workers trade guild or the purple dye maker or the linen makers, the pottery, the tanner, the leather makers, they had all that, the huge manufacturing, you know, kind of making stuff center in Asia. Each of these trade guilds was overtly religious, okay? Each one. And what they would do is each different trade guild would attach themselves to a different deity, a different god in a, in a Roman and Greek pantheon, okay? Now, this is where it became a problem if you're a Christian, Okay? If you were a Christian and you wanted to be a part of the dye makers uh, trade guild or the bronze workers trade guild or the leather makers or whatever, the bakers trade guild, you want to be a part of one of those, you would have to participate with them. Every, you know, each, each trade guild would have, you know, their feasts and their festivals to this certain God that that guild had attached themselves to that God, that deity. And so, of course, the Christians, you, you, I can't participate in that feast. And it's not that the trade guilds would tell you, you can't believe in Jesus, okay? It's not that they would say, you know, you need to renounce Jesus uh, or you can't be a part of this trade guild. No, no, they had no problem. People could believe in a hundred gods. Add Jesus to the list. No problem. The problem was if you want to be a part of this guild, it's not that you can, you can totally go and believe in Jesus if you want. Just do that on your own time. Totally fine. Go to church in your own time. That's fine. But when it comes to there's these certain things we do every year to this patron deity, then you're going to participate with us in this feast. You're going to eat with us in this feast. You're going to say some of these things and do some of these things. And so as a Christian in Thyatira, there was this huge, what I, I, did, I try to come up with a term for it, but just what I'm calling it today is economic pressure, okay? 
There was this huge economic pressure on Christians. If you want to have a job here, any of the good paying jobs, all the stuff where all the economic activity was happening, if you want to have business, if you want to get into the faculty, if you want to get the tools you need to do the business you need to do, there was this huge economic pressure to compromise. Not to renounce Jesus necessarily, but to compromise. Yeah, sure, keep Jesus, but, but on the other hand, you've got to participate with us in some of this. Now, I think that's it's actually hugely instructive. I want to stop you for just a minute because I think as Christians, we sometimes get trapped into this sort of this all-or-nothing thinking when it comes to persecution. And I think as Christians, often we, we, we see persecution as black and white total. It's all or nothing. We sort of think when, when there's persecution, persecution is when you live in a country where if you don't renounce Jesus right now, you're going to go to jail or get your head cut off or something, okay? Now, certainly that is persecution, and that kind of persecution is, is in many countries in, in the world today. And in fact, there's more Christians losing their, their lives and, and losing their freedom because of their faith today than ever before. And we talk about that a lot here at Cellfund. And I wish other churches in Canada would talk about it a lot too because we need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. There's a lot of persecution. Okay, but sometimes we get trapped into this thinking that that's the only kind of persecution that's out there is the kind of persecution that says you must renounce Jesus or else. And of course, we know that Jesus warned us Jesus certainly warned us in a number of different places in the Gospels. He said that in the days, as, as the time gets closer and closer for his return, that kind of persecution is going to increase. We know that. Okay? So we're 2,000 years closer to Jesus' return now than we were 2,000 years ago when he was here, right? And we're closer to his return this year than we were a year ago. And Jesus said the closer we get to his return, the more that kind of persecution is going to increase and increase and increase. And so we can expect that, and it's going to get worse. And we see that. More people are being martyred for, for Christianity and for loving Jesus today than at any other point in history, okay? But sometimes, because, as we get trapped into that kind of thinking, we fail to realize that in the meantime, there are all kinds of other methods the devil uses to put pressure on Christians to compromise. I mean, ultimately, I think he prefers just outright, you're going to jail or getting your head cut off unless you renounce Jesus. But if he can't have that everywhere, which he doesn't nearly have everywhere, then there are other forms of pressure that he can exert in order to get Christians to compromise their faith, to walk away from Jesus, whatever. And economic pressure is certainly one of them. And that's the kind of pressure, primarily, that the Christians in Thyatira were facing. Now think about that, okay? So imagine, you've got bills to pay, you've got kids to, to take care of, now you become a Christian, but you're already, I mean, you've worked 15 years in this job as a bronze worker. And now you become a Christian and suddenly they tell you at church, well, and plus, you just know it because the Holy Spirit, you're walking with him. Suddenly you know that this thing that comes up every February whatever, you know, or every whatever the particular holiday is to this deity, you suddenly, there's this party going on and you know in your heart that this offends the God who just saved you from hell. But you know if you don't go to the thing, if you don't tow the company line, you could lose your job. Now you're thinking, how am I going to pay the bills? What am I going to do if I lose my career? That's the kind of pressure this was. Economic pressure. And that's a powerful pressure, right? And of course, we know as well, as we've been going through this series in the seven letters to seven churches, over and over again, what I've been telling you is, is, is these letters are not entertainment for us. It's not just dead history. This is what happened 2,000 years ago, so you can know some facts about some other churches and other Christians that lived a couple thousand years ago. What we've been finding over and over and over again in these letters is that these churches were going through the same things. It's the same cycle that's going through the world today. 
These letters were written for, for them back then, but they still apply to us just as much today. And of course, we see the same things beginning now in Canada today in terms of pr that kind of pressure. Now, of course, we don't, have, we don't have anything nearly like what Thyatira had. We don't have that kind of economic pressure here in Canada yet. We don't have, it's not like that sort of thing where, you know, you want to have a job here in Canada and you'll lose it if you're a Christian. We're nowhere, we're nowhere near that. You know, we don't have these pagan feasts attached to most careers that I've heard of, at least in, in Canada. We're certainly on a much, much smaller level. But there's no question here. Most of you here today are, are Canadians, I'm assuming, judging from the cheering uh, before, when we talked about hockey. Most of you, I'm, I'm pretty safe to say most of you have lived here for a number of years, and you're Canadians through and through. And the fact of the matter is, there's no sense us pretending that this doesn't exist. The fact of the matter is, we all know as Canadians, we all know that there are certain topics you don't talk about at work. Isn't that true? We just feel it. Even if you weren't told you couldn't talk about it, you know, you know because you're a Canadian and we all live in this environment that there's certain things, there's certain opinions you don't share at work. There's certain things you don't talk about at work. Again, it's not nothing like, it's, we're not, I'm not comparing us to Thyatira. They're way further down the road. But, we need to, but, but we'd be ignorant, we'd be foolish to ignore the fact that we already feel that sort of a pressure, with that kind of a pressure, much, much smaller level, but that kind of a pressure is already here. In fact, I, I could show you uh, emails, uh, a couple emails I got a couple of years ago now already, not from people in this church, but other provinces uh, here in Canada, and they heard about our church and they sent me uh, from a particular medical field. And uh, again, I can't share much information because literally these people would be afraid to lose their jobs. That's what they told me in the email. But these are Christians. If you talk to anybody in their workplace and said, can I be a Christian and work in this workplace? Can I believe in Jesus? Of course you can believe in Jesus. It's a free country. We have freedom of religion here in Canada. Of course you can believe in Jesus. That's what it would, they would say in any job here in Canada, right? But when you, as long as you leave it at home, isn't that right? Because when you come here, one of the things we do here is we kill babies. So you don't dare talk against that or make the mistake of when you're with a client or whatever, calling the baby in her womb anything other than a fetus. You don't dare do that or you could lose your job. That's already here in Canada and has been for a couple of years in certain fields. Isn't that true? I'm not, I'm not telling you anything new here. I'm just telling you we're Canadians. I live here too. We experience this pressure. We could talk about Christian politicians. We need to pray for our Christian politicians. And we will this Tuesday, two days from now, prayer summit. Uh, Pastor Ray is, is still gone. He's writing so much important work that he's still uh, doing, getting church renewal stuff and discipleship stuff ready. So I'm leading this week. And one of the things we're going to do this week is we're going to pray. So we're going to spend a whole bunch of time just praying for our country and our politicians. But our Christian politicians, you would ask anybody here in Canada, is it okay for a Christian to be a politician? Of course! Of course Christians can be politicians in Canada. We have freedom of religion. It's great. It's easy. You can be a Christian and be a politician. Just don't talk about your beliefs in public. Isn't that true? Because you bring those, you bring up your beliefs. You can be a Christian in private, but you bring that thing into public, you could lose votes. You could have the media mad at you. And some others of you here today, teachers, principals, uh, you know, doctors in some cases, business people in certain fields, you know exactly what I'm talking about today because I've talked to you guys. And you know certain, certain places, certain careers you have here already now, you can't even in private on, you know, you can't even on your Facebook page put certain beliefs, your job could actually be in jeopardy, Okay? So we're not nearly where, where they were at at Thyatira. I'm not saying that at all. But we would also be 
We would also be ignorant and foolish if we didn't admit that this kind of pressure is here already right now. And one of the things I think is really sad is that many churches here in Canada just choose not to even talk about it. It's the elephant in the room. We all experience it every day. There's this pressure, but we don't talk about it. We'd rather have our heads in the sand and just pretend like everything's fine and good. And if we just think positive, it'll all turn out fine. You say, oh, you guys at Southland, you just, you just want to scare us. You want us to run around, woo, chicken, you know, chicken little, sky is falling. No. I'll tell you why we talk about these things. Not so that you're going to be freaked out every time you come on Sunday morning. Oh, those guys. Making us think, making us be fearful, all this sort of stuff. You want to know why we need to talk about the truth? Because what needs to happen in the church is there needs to be a sense of urgency that rises up in us so that we pray about these things. So that we pray about these things. You know, you read in the Old Testament, over and over again in the Old Testament, the enemies of Israel would mass on Israel's borders. And over and over again we see, you know, with, uh, with uh, oh, not Jericho, Jeroboam, no, Jehoshaphat, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, with the godly kings. You know what they would do? The enemies of Israel would mass on Israel's borders, and what would the godly kings do? They would call the people together in prayer and fasting, and then and they would call out to God in the urgency of the situation, and then what would God do? He would do mighty things. He would do mighty things. But you know what the church in Canada is doing today? We're pretending there's no enemies. The enemies are massing on our board. You think it's going to get better in 10 years? Do you think if we feel some pressure now, if we, just, if we just pretend like everything is good 10 years from now, it'll be easier to be a Christian in public? You think if you can't stand up about certain beliefs and opinions that we have based on the Bible today, you think if we can't stand up for that in certain careers and jobs today, that that's going to be better 20 years from now? There's a trajectory that's here. And it's not about being all terrified and freaked out of where we're going. But what has to happen is we need to, in the time that we have, using the freedoms that we have, we need to, we need to be, there needs to be a call to prayer and fasting and urgency that is ringing across the church here in Canada that calls us, there's enemies on the borders, we need God to work. And I think Jesus spoke about this kind of a time prophetically in John chapter 9. He said this, I love this verse, I think it's just so relevant to us today here in Canada. He says this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. We must work the works of him who sent us while it is day. We need to pray now. We need to have a sense of urgency now so that we can slow the tide of what's coming, so we can see more people saved, so we can build more into this next generation, so we can spread the truth more because the time is coming when there will be more darkness and less opportunity. I don't know, when, it, when is that time coming? We don't have dates. I don't know, it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's a week from now or a month from now or even a year from now. It could be 10 years, it could be 20 years. But while it is day, we cannot take the freedoms we have today for granted. There's already a pressure we can see. It's not like Thyatira yet, but there's a trajectory that's happening in our world, in our country, and Jesus warned us that it would get worse and worse. Now, this actually brings up something else because I know sometimes when I talk about this kind of stuff, some Christians have this kind of idea, you know, you talk to some Christians, you say, you know, someday there's going to be more pressure. Someday there could even be persecution. I don't know when, a decade, two decades, I don't know. It could be a year, two, I don't know. Whatever it is. But you talk to some Christians about that, and again, the proper response to any, to any warning like that is urgency, we need to pray. But instead of having urgency to pray, some Christians think, well, just let it happen, because when the persecution hits, that's actually what the church needs, and the church will wake up. Have you ever heard anyone say that? So it's like, can you imagine if the kings in the Old Testament had done that? 
Hey, the enemies are at the gates. They're going to overrun us. Well, hey, that's what we need. We just need those Moabites to just ravage us for a while, and then we'll be better off. Can you imagine that kind of reasoning? The whole point of why God allows trials to come to us is so we'll turn to him, not so that we'll go, oh, let the trial just run over us, and then we'll be better off. He's actually wanting us to call out to him for help. And besides, there's a hidden assumption in some of this reasoning that Christians have. There's a hidden assumption that some people have that they think that persecution by itself automatically causes the church to rise up and overcome. And the reason we think that is because we look around the world today and there are many places where there's intense persecution where the church is overcoming. So we look at places like China and Vietnam where there's been intense persecution over many decades. We see this victorious church and many people getting saved. We look at you know, some of the under incredible underground churches now springing up in some of the Muslim countries like Iran and different places like that in the Middle East where many hundreds of churches are being planted every year and there's intense persecution, but there's so many people getting saved. And we think, look at when persecution hits the church, the church just always automatically rises up and overcomes automatically, regardless of, of the spiritual quality of the believers in that place. And do you know that that's not true? We think it's just automatic, wherever there's persecution. So then, why worry about in pressure in Canada? If the pressure increases, our church will just get better. Not automatically, it won't. Not automatically, it won't. See, I've actually been holding on to a piece of historical information this entire series that I've, I just haven't talked about yet. And I've been waiting for the right time to just talk about it. So we've been talking about these, these seven churches in, in Asia that Jesus wrote these letters to. And uh, we've got these, you know, Ephesus and, and Smyrna and Pergamum, now Thyatira and all these places. Did you know that all of these churches ended up dying out? Everyone. Province of Asia in Roman times in the first and second century A.D., First and second century A.D., and we looked at this in the book of Acts as well. I mean, that church, the province of Asia, Paul went there, uh, to Ephesus, and in two years, the believers at Ephesus spread the gospel across the entire province in two years by foot. I mean, we looked at a bit of that a few weeks ago. This was one of the key, this was one of the powerhouses of Christianity in the entire world in the first and second century ADs. It was one of the most vibrant, powerful, fastest growing, evangelistic, missionary sending churches in the whole world was in the province of Asia. 2,000 years later, in the modern day uh, country of Turkey, we have Turkey, which is, well, yeah, in the modern day country of Turkey, we have Turkey. Yes, the modern day country of Turkey is now the, if not the least, one of the least Christianized countries in the entire world. Out of a population of about 73 million people, many people think Turkey is the least Christianized country in the entire world right now. Out of 73 million people, generous estimates have it at about 200,000 people as Christians, but in that they're counting people who would consider themselves to be ethnically Christians. People who are born into it, not necessarily people who are born again, who, have, who believe you know, about Jesus Christ and dying on the cross and all this stuff like we do, or who are walking with him. If you talk about born-again evangelical believers out of a country of 73 million, by the way, that 200,000, that's only 0.3%. But if you actually look at, okay, born-again evangelical believers, you know, people who believe the whole Bible is true and Jesus is the only way to salvation, they're walking with him, they have a relationship with him, it might be more like 10 or 20,000 in the entire country. This, from the, from the center of the one of the most vibrant churches in the entire world, has gone to the least, blackest, darkest, one of the darkest spiritual places in the entire earth. And I could actually share with you other examples like this. The fact of the matter is that the church does not always 
automatically overcome in, in, in persecution and tough times. It doesn't. We celebrate the instances where it does. Amen. God can overcome in places where the believers are really truly seeking after him and there's a spiritual quality and depth to them as they go hard after God. And of course, by the way, I, just, I should say this. I'm, we're not, I'm not blaming the Christians who received these seven letters from, from Jesus because it died out centuries after them. It was future generations. But the fact of the matter is, if it was automatic that a church just rises up and overcomes in difficult times, Jesus wouldn't have to write the instructions of the seven letters. The reason he gave them the seven letters was to give them instructions. This is how you overcome. And the implication is, if you don't follow my instructions, it's possible for there to be places on the earth where the church actually loses. Jesus never loses. And ultimately, he's going to raise up a victorious bride, but there are places on earth where the church can lose. Jesus doesn't lose, but where believers take it for granted and there's apathy and they don't push hard after Jesus and they don't turn to him with fasting and prayer and repentance when times are tough. It's actually possible for the church to lose. Otherwise, if it's just automatic, we don't even need any of this. It's just going to happen how it is, right? But Jesus is calling us to something deeper and something better. And so the, the, the question is, okay, well, how, how do we overcome then? These people at Thyatira were experiencing a much, much more severe form of economic pressure than we are even right now. But how did they, what was the secret then? Okay, well, what did Jesus say to them to help them that was supposed to help them to overcome in a place where my job's actually on the line? If I do right and refuse to compromise, my job's on the line. What kind of advice does Jesus give to them? Well, let's go there. Chapter 2, verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So what's the first thing? Jesus does this church in, in Thyatira. He introduces himself. Okay? You say, well, what, what does that help? Right? I mean, what is that? They're Christians. They already know who Jesus is. I mean, what, what they need is a promise, right? I mean, they need a promise that if we follow you, Jesus, you're going to make sure all the bills get paid and you're going to do a miracle and we won't lose our job. Well, actually, if you, you read through the whole letter, and it's, it's, it's one of the longest out of the seven letters, and it's going to take me two weeks to get through it, so just in case you're worried, it is noon, and I'm not anywhere near finishing it. Well, I'm going to finish it next week, okay? But, but, uh, where was I? <laughs> Introduces, yeah, so you're thinking, you read through the whole letter, and you think, um, okay, Jesus, what we need here is a promise that everything's going to turn out okay if we just follow you. And you know, you go through the entire letter, and there's no promise like that anywhere in the letter. There's no promise that things are going to turn out okay. At the end of the letter, there's an amazing promise that things turn out good after you die, if you remain faithful. But there's nothing in the whole letter to Thyatira that you won't lose your job. You know what? If you just follow me, I'll make sure you get to keep your job. That's what you were worried about. Oh, cool. I can follow Jesus and I'll keep my job. No, no. There's no promise like that. You say, well, let's look in here and let's get the three-step formula do this, this, and this, and then you'll overcome in this time. This is what you need to do in order to overcome. There's no three-step formula either. What's the first thing? What does Jesus do? They're worried. How am I going to keep my job? How am I going to make a living? I was living at this standard of living. I'm going to lose this if I don't compromise. Uh, surely it's okay to compromise a little bit. What if I just go to the feast 
don't actually say the prayers, just kind of hide my faith in Jesus, but I don't actually do anything overtly bad. That, surely that's okay, right? No, no. How do I stay strong in economic pressure like that, not to compromise? And the first thing Jesus does is he does not give them a program. He does not give them a formula. He does not give them a promise. He gives them himself. He strides into the room and he says, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He just walks in and says, here I am. And so many Christians today, they go, okay, so now what's next? Give me something practical, right? Because we've totally lost sight of the fact that Jesus actually is the answer. Isn't that true? Oh, that's a cliche. I almost feel sick even saying it. Oh, Jesus is the answer. That's the thing, Chris. Oh, that's what I got up for this morning. Jesus is the answer. Jesus actually is the center of it all. Let me, let's think about this for just a moment. Let's think about that cliche for just a bit. Okay? They're, wor- they're worried about their jobs. They're worried about the bills. They're worried about their careers. And Jesus comes in and says, here I am. How does that help? Actually, it helps everything. See, we need, to get, we need to get a whole new perspective about our lives and our careers and Jesus. It actually is. Your whole existence actually is all about him. It actually is. Not just a cliche. It actually is. See, after you die or after he comes back, whichever comes first, we are going to spend all of eternity, we're talking quadrillions, quintillions, trillions, billions and billions of years without end, is all going to be about worshiping him, serving him, getting to know him, doing stuff for him. That's going to be forever. For some of you, that's a little depressing. Because you're bored with Jesus, and that's a very sad place to be as a Christian. But that is all of eternity is going to be about him. You know, right now, if uh, Hebrews 1 verse 4 says that he holds the entire universe together by the word of his power. That means right now, the only reason the whole universe is even holding together is because he's consciously keeping it together. I mean, if he forgot about us, if that was possible, if he forgot about us right now for even a moment, that's it. The whole thing blows apart. It's all gone. He, it really is all about him. In fact, the only reason you're here today, the only reason you're here sitting here listening to me, looking at me right now, and your heart is still beating, and your chest is going in and out, I'm still alive, I'm still alive, I'm sitting here, I don't know why I've sat here so long already, but you're sitting here and you're alive, right? The only reason you're still sitting here right now breathing and you're alive and your heart's beating and your blood is flowing, the Bible says, is because right now, this moment, he is consciously keeping you alive. Acts 17, Acts 17, 24 to 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It actually really is all about him. We run around tearing our hair out. Oh, if I don't compromise, I could lose this, or I could lose that, or I won't be able to pay for this. And even beyond economic pressure, we could even just leave that there. Health pressure family pressure that you may be feeling right now. And we run around, oh, reading books, and it's good to read books and learn stuff, but we're trying to figure out, what do I do to get through this? And Jesus is calling out to us, and he says, actually, it's all about me. He's not only Lord of the universe, he's intimately involved in your life, keeping you alive this moment. 
Sometimes people think, oh, God, sometimes we have this feeling like God doesn't, he's kind of ignoring me. He doesn't know what's going on in my life. The fact that you're breathing shows he's very well aware of, of where you are and who you are. He's keeping you alive. So he's intimately involved in your life. He's the Lord of the universe. We're going to worship him for billions and billions and billions of years without end. It actually really is all about him. And so when this pressure, you say, well, how do I get through pressure? I'm looking for three steps. I'm looking for a practical application. I'm looking for a promise to get me through it. Well, amen, when you walk with Jesus, he's going to give you practical steps about doing this and that. He's going to give you promises. But those aren't the things you actually need. What you need is him. Because the moment you quiet your heart and he walks into the room and you just hear in your spirit like thunder rolling over your soul the words of the Son of God. And just in that quiet place, those words rumble in your spirit. And in that moment, all of your promises problems cease to be problems. All of your problems get swallowed up in the magnificence of who he is. Because he actually is. We're not talking about a fairy tale here. This isn't just a religion. This isn't just a game we're playing. Christianity is a fun game until it gets too hard. And then in that case, we need to compromise it so we can keep living. But there is something, this is, this is the real deal. Jesus actually is keeping you alive right now. He is actually keeping the universe together right now. And what you need more than anything else when the pressure goes up in your life is you need to be with him. Because when he introduces himself to you, that's when you, oh, and now you're, you're lifted up. You're, it wells up within you. I can overcome. The number one key is that we meet with Jesus experientially over and over and over again because the external pressure our society will put on us and other things, health, finances, marriage, whatever, the external pressures that we face in our lives, they, they don't go away. And the only way to keep from caving and compromising is to have something internally, joy, strength from the Lord that makes you strong, that lifts you up, that comes from him, the joy of the Lord. See, the key to overcoming as the church, you, you, you look at you know, the churches where the church is overcoming, you look at places in the world where the church has actually lost, where it's, it's, it's shrunk, it's gone, it's for all intents and purposes dead. You look at the key, how, do we be, how are we a church, how are we a people that overcome in pressure as, a, as opposed to giving in or fading away in pressure? And the key is not determination. Some of think we just got to be determined. Well, determination is an important thing, no doubt, in overcoming. Determination is, is wonderful. We need to have determination in our lives. But determination by itself is, is not strong enough. Determination by itself is tiring. Determination by itself can wear away over time as the pressure's on you. Determination can leak. It can, it can fade. You can lose determination. What we need is a constant filling of the Holy Spirit where we are touching Jesus and he's touching us and the joy of the Lord. It's not a joy you can manufacture. It's a joy that only comes when you touch him and he touches you and you're in his presence suddenly. Oh, the son of God. And your heart wells up with the joy that only comes from him, the joy of the Lord. And suddenly you have this internal strength and suddenly determination is a lighter burden. And you can stand long-term through any kind of pressure, whether it be economic persecution pressure on the church or whether we're just talking about personal pressures that we all face in our lives, whether it be marriage pressure or financial pressure or whatever. We need to meet with Jesus experientially over and over and over again. Now, here's the thing. Again, so many cliches. And one of the things, lots of Christians talk about relationship with Jesus. The moment I talk about relationship with Jesus, you sit there and you nod your head, oh, amen. Yeah, it's all about relationship with Jesus. Lots of Christians talk like that. Oh, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about relationship with Jesus. And you just nod your head, nod your head, nod your head. 
But the fact of the matter is, many Christians who talk relationship with Jesus, relationship with Jesus, relationship with Jesus, relationship with Jesus, actually haven't been anywhere near Jesus for a long time. And I'll tell you how I know. It's because they don't have joy. Stephen talked about it last week. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's our strength, is the joy of the Lord. You only get that from being with the Lord, not actually talking to him, and lo- or talking about him, sorry. And lots of people who talk about relationship with Jesus, about relationship with Jesus, you get with them, and all of their reactions to life are fear-based. They're constantly afraid. They're constantly fearful. They're constantly stressed. They're constantly this and that. The only way to be different than that, if you live that way, you eventually wear down. There isn't a five-step program to not be that way. When you're under pressure, the most natural thing in the world is to be afraid, is to be stressed, is to be worried. And if you live there long enough, you will be crushed by the pressures of this life. There's not a three-step program out of that. There's not one promise that will rescue you out of that. The only thing that rescues you out of that is to actually be with Jesus. And he walks into the room. You've quieted your heart. Oh, thank you for that touch. And you have joy. So it's not just a cliche relationship with Jesus. If you've actually met with Jesus, there will be a touch of hope and joy on your life. And that's how you stand up under, against compromise and to endure under pressure. To so actually be touched by Jesus. And last week, you know, last week's encounter with Jesus or touch from Jesus won't be enough to deal with this week's pressure. The pressure is always there. Last month's encounter with Jesus or touch from Jesus or a little bit of hope or joy. Yeah, I got an email this week from a guy in my cell and he drives truck long distance. And he just sent me this one, one line email and he said, do you ever have those days where God just touches you and it's like the most amazing day and you just feel this joy rising up in you? And I just emailed him back. I said, I love those. That's what it's actually all about. You're not just talking about Jesus. He's like, he's some fake figure out there. He's actually real. And he can touch your life and he can transform you. And if you don't meet with him, though, you cannot persevere under crushing pressure of any kind. And so that for the church to overcome, we need to actually meet with Jesus and be introduced to Jesus over and over and over and over again. Well, let's keep going. Like I said, I'm not going to finish today. We're not even going to open up the Jezebel can of worms. We'll talk about that next week. But one more verse. Verse 19, all right? Jesus says this, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And so Jesus is encouraging them here. I know your, I know your love and faith and service. So this is what these Christians are facing, okay? They're facing, you know, you, 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 you have to compromise. You can keep Jesus privately, but you have to compromise if you want to keep being prominent here in society, if you want to keep your career, all this sort of stuff. And Jesus looks at him, he says, I know your works. I know your love and faith and your service and your patient endurance. And he says, and that your latter works exceed the first. What a great line that is. And that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, Jesus says, the works you're doing today, your heart, your behavior, the words coming out of your mouth, your works today are better than your works at the beginning. Your works this year are a lot different than your works from five years ago. Your works this month are different, you know, than your works a couple of years ago. Your latter works exceed the first. Your recent behavior, your recent heart for people, your recent love for me is better than it was before. You're not perfect yet, but you're growing. You're not perfect yet, but you're growing. Do you see Jesus' heart here? Your latter works exceed the first. You're not perfect. Jesus says, no, you're never going to be perfect until the resurrection. 
and I just fully cleanse the whole thing and it's over and there's no more sin. You're not going to be perfect until then. But he says, one of the things I really love about you guys is that your latter works to see the first. You still have all kinds of problems, but you're better this year than you were last year. You're growing. And did you know that this is one of the absolute key signs? We talked about how do you make it through pressure, pressure in your marriage, pressure in your finances, or the coming pressure that's going to increase in our country to compromise. How do we stay strong in that? You have to meet with Jesus over and over and over again. And I'm not just talking about devotions where you check it off a list. I'm talking about encountering the Lord. When you say, well, how do I know if I'm encountering the Lord regularly? I'll tell you one of the key ways you know that you're encountering the Lord regularly. Your latter works will exceed the first. Your works this year, if you have honestly been meeting with Jesus this past year, I'll tell you one of the key ways that you'll know. You will be different this year than you were last year. It's a guarantee. It's an absolute guarantee. You want to know why? It's because one of Jesus' biggest desires, one of his biggest reasons for keeping you alive right now is because he still wants to do some more work in you. A lot of us as Christians actually have a wrong idea about this. We think the reason Jesus is keeping me alive right now is because of all this work he has for me to do for his kingdom. Isn't that how we often think? Like we often talk about that on the radio and in messages and stuff. The reason God's keeping us alive, the reason I'm still alive is because I still have work to do on this, on, on this earth. Well, amen, that certainly is true. Jesus certainly does. He gave you gifts, he gave you abilities, and he wants you to use them for his kingdom. There's no question about that. And the fact that you're alive today means he still wants to use you for his kingdom. I'm not denying that. That is certainly true. But we think that's his biggest thing. It's almost like Jesus needs me. Like, whoa, if I died, what would Jesus do? Let me tell you something. You're not that good at anything. He's got 7 billion people on the earth. You don't think he could fill your shoes with somebody else? There's like lots of people who could do anything you can do for Jesus that could do it just as good or better. So just to pop that balloon, oh, my self-esteem is taking such a hit here today. You know what? Just deal with it and fall in love with Jesus rather than yourself. Jesus doesn't need any of us. He loves you. You're his kid. Certainly, he gave you gifts and abilities so you could use them for his kingdom, but he doesn't need you. That isn't the biggest reason why you're still alive today. Every bit as big as you, what you do for him, every bit as big, if not more, in his mind of why you're alive today is because of what he wants to do in you. He's the potter. We are the clay. One of Jesus' biggest delights is to mold a piece of clay and make something out of it, to refine a piece of gold and make it pure. And so one of the big reasons why you go through the things you go through and why you're still breathing today and he's keeping you alive moment by moment is because he delights to make you into a masterpiece. He wants to conform you into his image. That's the miracle. Now, of course, he's also going to use you and he wants to use the, the talents and abilities and partner with you and all sorts of stuff. I'm not throwing that out. But his big, one of his big desires is to make you into something beautiful. To make you, which for some of you is a real miracle, right? Um, but uh, he wants to make you more humble. I mean, for some of you, wow. Right? You know, you can poke your spouse. That's you. No. Uh, he wants to make you more loving. He wants to make you more patient. He wants, to, he wants to do this work in you where he draws more and more of the fruit of the Spirit out, you, out of you and you just become this person where the fragrance of Christ is all over you. He wants to do that in you. It's not so much that he needs you to do stuff for him. He wants to purify you. That is Jesus' desire. Now, 
Knowing that now, think about this. How is it possible that someone could say that they actually walk with Jesus and this year they're no different than they were last year? How could that even be possible? Unless you have already attained to the fullness of Christ's likeness before the resurrection. Congratulations, you are perfect and amazing. No. No. If you are stagnant, it's not because you're perfect. It's because you, you might have come to church every week this last year. You might have come to church every single week this last year. You might have been a Christian for the last 30 years. You just sit there smugly every week, and you love how the messages are hitting someone else. And you're just glad, and it's just, you know, I'm a Christian, you don't even think about it, and if anyone looked at your life, or people around you, or if you looked at your own life, and you said, how are you different? Do your works this year exceed your works from last year? Do you love more this year than you did last year? Do you lose your temper less this year than you did five years ago? Do you gossip less this year than you did a couple of years ago? When you do gossip, are you more convicted of it? Do you repent? Do you turn back to Jesus? Do you make it right? Are you more patient with your kids this year than you were last year? If you can't go through your life and see places where I'm, not just 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago I left drugs and became a Christian. God radically changed me. And some people have that story. And then they live off that for the rest of their life. Never mind 10 years ago how God radically changed you. If you have been anywhere near Jesus this past year, your latter works will exceed your first. He will change you. That is his passionate desire. You want to know how to stand up under pressure? You're going to have to meet with Jesus experientially. You want to know if you're meeting with Jesus experientially? You should be able to see that your latter works exceed the first. There should be a, a repentance and a change that is happening in your life all the time. Do you love people more? Do you empathize better? Do you trust God more? Do you have more joy? Not that you're perfect. Some of you, with, you, know, some of you women and stuff with intense body image stuff, it's not that you're perfect yet. Sometimes it takes years to walk out of that. But are you less stressed about that stuff than you were five years ago? Some of you guys, do you lust less? You're not perfect yet. But is it less now than it was two years ago? Is it less now than it was six months ago? If you're walking with Jesus, your latter works will exceed the first. It's one of the signs. And if your latter works exceed the first, you're meeting with Jesus, you are the kind of person he's going to start to put his imprint of joy and hope on you that is going to be able to stand under intense pressure. Personal pressure or whatever pressures our country may bring on us as we go along, as we get closer to Jesus' return. How God is changing me. You know, I, I think of, if, if you could read my journal, and you can't, I won't let you be embarrassing for both of us, okay? But, it, you know, if you could read my journal, one of the things you would see, not just this last week because I'm preaching this, but this has been for months already, one of the things that you would see regularly in my journal over and over and over again is that I'm more thankful for than pretty much anything else is I'm so thankful for how God continues to change me. I'm just so thankful. And you could ask, and it's not just me making it up. You could talk to my wife, LaDawn, and uh, you probably talk to my kids. Actually, that's probably not better. I'm not sure what they're going to say. But you could talk to LaDawn. And you could, in the last year, one of the things I've been so thankful for is God has really been doing a work in me in terms of my patience, how I, how I deal with, you know, uh, tempers and, and hard things and frustration with the kids. I'm way more patient. I'm not nearly perfect, not even close. 
thank God I'm better than I was last year in some of these things. I care about people more. Some of you have even told me that. You've noticed that. Now, don't all come bringing me your problems. I don't care that much yet. I still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm still a long way, but I care about people more. It's actually different. The way I preach even now is different because my heart towards God and people is different. All of this is stuff God's been changing me again even this past year. You never stop. If you're walking with Jesus, the latter works of seeing the first will never stop until you're resurrected. And then you will be fully in his likeness. He loves that. And he's not expecting perfection. He's just expecting repentance. Like I said last week, you could have two people do the exact same sin, the exact same one. And one person is just indifferent, and they've been a Christian all their life, and it just doesn't even bother them, and they presume on the kindness of God, and Jesus actually is angry at them, and he disciplines them. He may even judge them in wrath. And the other person is, is weak, and they did the exact same sin. But the other person is weak, and they wish that they hadn't, and they can't stand that they keep falling. And Jesus has a huge smile on his face towards this person, and he's working with them out of grace and love and mercy. Your latter works exceed the first. You don't have to be perfect. You, I have to pick you up again for the thousandth time. I love you, but you're headed in the right direction. I'm growing you. You're maturing, and you're growing in me. Jesus loves that. He absolutely loves that. Well, we're going to have to end that now, and I'll finish this letter uh, next week, but I want to leave you with a challenge. Two things this week to go with our, with our kind of two main points. First of all, I'd encourage you to join us again, prayer, this Tuesday night. We're going to spend lots of time for our, our country. If we, can't, if we can't get urgent about our country now, how, when will we ever get urgent? And, and, and God, so God is calling us. He wants us to cry out to him for help. And, and as a church, we need to pray. And so this week, we're going to pray, or this Tuesday, we're going to pray lots for our government, for our church. We're going to celebrate uh, Uganda. So many amazing answers to prayer. The shipment finally came in. The corn is dried out. They've bagged it. It's amazing. Huge things. Awesome things. And we're going to celebrate that. That's on Tuesday. But we need to pray as a church. Second thing is, I would challenge you to have some time for self-examination this week. And actually, just honestly, because this really comes down to the difference between religion and relationship. It's so easy to think, because you use the language of relationship with Jesus, it comes out of your mouth all the time, it's so easy to think that you have a relationship with Jesus, and when in sometimes, in some cases, people are just playing a game. They don't even realize it. They're just self-deceived. Well, one of the ways you can find out very quickly is you do a time of self-examination this week and say, am I any different this year than I was a year ago? Am I any different this year? Prayerfully, Jesus, have I changed my heart? Has my heart for you deepened at all? Has my heart for people deepened? Am I more of a servant? Am I more humble? Have I changed anywhere in the way I talk and the way I feel and think and treat people in this last year? If there's no change, if you prayerfully look at your life and you are stagnant and nobody around you could see any growth towards Jesus, then that's a sign. Not that you're a bad, wicked person that's on your way to hell. Not at all. It's just a sign you need to repent. And Jesus is saying, you haven't actually met with me. Please come and be with me. And then ask the Lord and say, and if he does show you some stuff that you've been changing, that's awesome. Praise God. Thank him for that. Ho, oh, that's a sign that you're working in my life. The fruit of the Spirit is more and more evident in my life. And then ask Jesus, I would challenge you to do that this, this week. Ask Jesus, what areas in my life would you like to focus on? What areas are you wanting to change in me this year? And, and let it, write those down, begin to pray about those. Again, the, 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 the point of this isn't that you're going to work hard to be a different person. The point is you're going to walk with Jesus, and as you walk with Jesus, he's going to change you into a different person. All right, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll worship. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we love you. It really is all about you. 
You are the center of it all. You, keep, you are keeping us alive even right now. You are the Lord of the universe. The biggest problems and pressures we're ever going to face in this life are nothing compared to you. They're swallowed up in the magnificence and awesomeness of who you are. So Lord Jesus, we need to walk with you. I pray that you would, we would encounter you this week. I pray that you would change us more and more and more in this church, that we would be the kind of church that will overcome as times get tough. That you will put the fruit of the Spirit more and more and more into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.